the last months I just picked mushrooms. And I picked 50 kilos of mushrooms on my own. That means you have to spend an awful amount of time out in the woods on my own. Like most of the time alone, because I just prefer that even. Like I like being with friends, but I prefer also being alone. And yeah, so I became this sort of hippie character now almost. I just don't look like it and I don't make work like that. But uh, I think I almost became that. It was always a joke that I was like, a, people even said it to me that I was this like closet hippie that I, <laughs> that I sort of had it in me. But maybe now I'm just like living it out, their prediction, you know? And uh, yeah, so I think what it, yeah, I think what it, what happened is, and I will try to get it into detail now what, what happened and why it happened. And I think this has to do with a lot of things in society. So like, first of all, I think a lot of technology is there to make life more comfortable. So if you strive for more, a more comfortable life, then you would want more technology in that direction, right? And also if you enjoy the spectacle of it, right? And you enjoy the efficiency of it, you enjoy, you enjoy the, the sort of the, how simple it is. But if you, if you sort of try to crystallize or you try to like point out exactly what it is about life that you enjoy and it turns into being like, yeah, I, watch, I like watching these films or I like doing this, then of course you, you kind of want certain technology to appear for you, right? But if that's not what you're looking for, then it starts to be boring. At least in my case, I'm still enjoying it. I'm still listening to music and it's, you know, it's like, it's a part of life, like a habit. But is it something that I really, really am passionate about? Like I used to be? No, not at all. I don't. And I think it has to do with being present because a lot of these things is about sort of like, first of all, you have to sort of give up, um, the like your fear of dying has to go this might sound strange but it's this true like you I, I would like to have a cup of tea though can we like refill it so anyways your fear of dying has to go and what does that what does that mean like for example medicine modern medicine is very important for humans right so it's like it's also part of a, a large part of technology right or maybe not just medicine, but any sort of thing that like makes you live longer. That maybe involves shoes too, right? <laughs> so yeah, you, you have to give up your fear of dying. As soon as you give up your fear of dying, you can become more present. I mean, this is sort of like, I mean, the Buddhist been knowing this for like, I don't know how many thousand years, but I recently discovered this. <laughs> so, so, or I didn't, I was never really afraid of dying, but I think the moment you realize what it really, how much it actually uh, impacts your life and everything around your life, I think then you realize what it really is the fear of it. So when you get rid of that and you become more present, that's when you can fully enjoy things around you that you didn't enjoy before. 
and when that happens you become more into just observing and less of um, like you become more interested in in just how things are than than how how you can change things and of course this is ironic for me to say when I run an activist newsletter but like um, you become more interested in just the way things are right now and what you can find right now in front of you and I think that is sort of in contradiction to a lot of like what technology promises you at least for me in my nature it has become this sort of like um, yeah it just it just sort of lost its face you know when something loses face like you first really enjoy it and you, you enjoy it for so many years and you sort of like build your practice around it and then suddenly it just doesn't like it doesn't look the same way it just doesn't like really appeal to you in the same way that's what happened and it's hard to explain but it has to do with like first of all uh, losing like completely overcoming the fear of dying and second working on being more present third acknowledging what's around you and then you realize you don't need much <laughs> so i don't have much things anymore and i don't plan to acquire a lot of things i don't see the point in them and yes i'm active on social media and stuff like that and I'm not like, you know, you don't have to become a dogmatic person because you believe in these things. But I don't really see, I mean, you need to make a living, you need to sort of get by and like a lot of these things you need to still acti actively do even though they don't even make so much sense to me. But, so I've been in this sort of change for the last, I don't know, three years. And that's why I haven't seen much output from me because at some moment I was like why am I creating anything this doesn't make any sense it doesn't make sense that I should go around and change things in this way or like contribute in that way it doesn't really I, I didn't see the point and I think there's uh, observing something is very underrated Do you know what I mean? Like, hardly, you would hardly hear an artist just talk about observing. Is there any artist that you ever met that is just observing? Can you call yourself an artist if you just observe? You can't, because you need some output. And like, everything in a society is like, geared towards output. And today is extreme, like anyone should have an output, right? Like you have social media where you have a profile where you output, right? Everything is output. Everything is just about like expressing yourself into the micro scale that is possible, right? Having an opinion about everything, you know, and then creating something. Everything's about this and very little is about observing and, and perception. And just sort of, and of course you would say, yeah, but then we wouldn't have everything around us. And, it, and then like, you know, you wouldn't have the medical conditions to be alive. Maybe, maybe I would be dead. You know, if, if I'm a C, I'm celiac, for example, if I wouldn't know that, maybe I would just get cancer and die. So I should be thankful. But again, 
you have to be afraid of dying to be afraid of dying in that way. So I do think that's why I say it, because a lot of these things hinges on the idea that you're, uh, that you, you are sort of uh, greedy on life, I would say. Maybe greedy is the wrong word. Put it differently. You are just... Or maybe like this. If you can be so present that you don't necessarily need to live a second longer, then what matters? Like if you just like put yourself in that situation of being in that second, what matters in that second? TCF is an entropic self-referential system, both conspicuous and concealed from the public, which is expressed through a vast range of mediums, from tea to sound, a chatbot and even DNA strings. Keyholder and administrator of this unique information system is the artist and musician Lars Holthus, alias TCF, who questions our relationship to the technological infrastructures that permeate contemporary life through language, code, cryptography, and most recently, ecology. For the last few years, the Norwegian-born artist has been going through a process of confrontation with the material conditions of his artistic practice, a paradigm shift tilting the axis of his work from future to present from reactiveness to sheer presence, in deep alignment with Buddhist postulates. Becoming self-sufficient and reducing your impact on the environment whilst remaining an active agent in the contemporary art world requires alternative modes of distribution, production and consumption. Biota, his ongoing project with David Ainley, is an example that illustrates where his energies are at the moment. Biota takes the form of a newsletter focusing on ecology and practical solutions for a more sustainable life. In late 2019, Lars told us, The last months I just picked mushrooms. Maybe the answer is in mushrooms. In this podcast, Lars Holthus advocates for presence and awareness. Between sips of tea, he reflects on tool-making and its impact, AI, and our obsession with flesh, human time, and machine time. He also confesses how boring technology becomes when you're 70% Buddhist, while introducing us to his latest projects, a virtual touring software that flirts with the boundaries of the live music industry and a random processing tool that he fits to compose and create images. I 
I can speak something about politics, but I will speak on specifically related to my work. So I started this newsletter, which is about, it was started with a friend of mine and we wanted to do something different than just making art or making music. He's a musician too. David Ainley is his name. So uh, we wanted to do something different than just making art. So we started a newsletter. It was supposed to be a newsletter that was quite practical about the environment, like on a small scale, what you can do to sort of be aware of what's out there because most of the news that were coming was sort of like spectacle based news and also just simple practical solutions that you could apply to your everyday life. And we wanted to do that because we do both have some sort of activist side to ourselves and we call it biota and it's operational to some extent. <laughs> it takes many forms and it was supposed to be a chatbot first, which you could ask. It still is a chatbot actually, but it's haven't been released yet. So it was supposed to be in a chatbot. You could ask about anything in your daily life that you needed another solution to. So you would just say like, okay, bed sheets and you get like more, um, sustainable bed sheets, basically. So you could say like everything in this hotel room and you would get an answer to that. And the research sort of is what we've been doing. And then you can have a simple answer to it. So it could simplify your approach to this it's because nobody in modern life has the time to go into all of this. You can go into a shop where somebody has done that research and it's a similar thing basically. But we didn't sell things. We just sort of delivered that information together with the newsletter. And the bot might still come out. The newsletter is taking many different forms. But what I learned from this process in terms of what I discovered both politically, first of all, I got more and more disappointed in my peers. <laughs> <laughs> And I became more and more radical in, in how I see things. And I became less and less interested in technology. So that was sort of like, <laughs> yeah, that was sort of like the conclusion of this. And I became like, I don't see these things as hopeless because if I do see these things as hopeless, then I mean, what are you going to do? You're just going to give up? You know, it's that's not something I want to spend my time doing. So I do have a hope that slowly but surely things will change. And else I wouldn't be doing this sort of more activist approach to this. On the other side, there's this constant battle, you know, where you're just like, personally, you can't be a perfect citizen either and you can't like fully be sustainable or fully live that life because it also has a cost to even get to that life right and even if you do it is that the most efficient way of of trying to change something is that the most efficient way that you live that way or is it more efficient that you try to make more people live that way or what is it you know and this is sort of like an endless struggle of like collecting information, then processing it, then trying to figure out like, okay, what is the most efficient way of doing something? And then 
talking to people about it, right? And then um, you don't want to confront people with it because you don't want to be this sort of moral guide that tells people like, oh, but you're just like really I seeing you on it. I'm I'm seeing you on Instagram, and I see that you're just like indulging in everything I don't believe in, and you're a friend of mine. You don't want to be like a moral preacher to that person because that person maybe just don't understand the consequences of a life like that like people could also be a moral preacher to me i'm personally very open for it if people would come to me and say like Lars, you're flying too much i would be like that's fine i am flying too much and i should be flying less and you are right and this i think we should take this approach rather than an approach where everyone gets like super defensive and somebody says anything like that to you we should rather just help each other to be more aware but i do believe by leading by example more than preaching so uh, that's why we started this newsletter it's not a preaching newsletter it's a newsletter that just gives examples and we try to apply them ourselves in our daily life In that process, a lot happened, like a lot more happened, and it sort of changed a lot of my perspectives on things. And now I find myself in this sort of weird territory, which, because so much of my work has been about technology, and so much has been about like AI and the future and all of these things, right? <laughs> But I'm becoming this like Stone Age guy, you know? It's not, it doesn't, it doesn't like, there's this like perceived idea and then there's the reality. And this is really uh, confronting in many ways, also to me, because people have a perceived idea of you and they confront you with that perceived idea. But it's so far away from what I really believe in, which it always was because this idea is created by others often but it's still now, it's so far that it's become like, that I have to sort of explain to people like, look, that's not really what I believe. And I think it's really great that you can change your opinion about things by getting more information on a topic. And I think that's something that I read somewhere that that's probably one of the hardest things to do is to change people's opinions. Like, as a scientific study, it's proven that it's really almost impossible. And that's really, that's really sad, I think, because that's sort of what we have to do in these times, in many ways.
we're living in a very divisive time. So things are splitting in many ways and people also split in their ways of approaching. I think both of them are sort of romantic. So I think it's important to remember that like both discovering the past or discovering crafts is like romantic, but, and then machine learning and the future and like AI is a romantic thing too. And I think they're both, but that's maybe that's just art in general. I, I always consider art a very romantic practice. Um, at least from like dealing with other people in other fields and how they relate to their practice. I often considered like creative practices more on the romantic side of life, <laughs> which is a good thing. <laughs> and I also don't think they're separated at all because tool making is something that humans have been doing for I don't know how long. And I don't think that you're just sort of tapping into different parts of history where tool making was happening. And some people say stop. And some people say AI <laughs> and it's, it's, it's just a different time of tool making. It's not like there is uh, some, like we just sophisticated tool making to such an extent that it became computers and then AI and then where we are now, neural networks and so on. I don't personally see a huge difference. Like you would have to say, I think anything that was created that was a tool is an extension of a, of a human. So the, the question comes more like, where do you draw the line for what is an extension? And I think any machine is an extension of a human. It's built by humans. It's uh, all the things on there is human. And uh, yeah, so I don't think that that distinction is not so clear. And I think there's a problem to make that distinction because then you start to sort of like, um, it's easy to sort of uh, then say that we're gone. Like it's easy f when you when you start to make a div like divide these things like computers or like a hammer, right? It's easy to divide these things, but they're actually just points in time of invention. And I don't want to divide that because I think this is the way humans operate. Like we just develop the hammer and then we develop a mechanical hammer that can do the job for a hammer. And then we develop some pressure hammer that can like shoot the nails in. And then we develop like an AI that can control that hammer and shoot the nails in. Right. I don't see the, you know, to be fair, I don't, it's just a sophistication of tools and I don't, yeah, and then you could say the impact, you could talk about impact, maybe from the only way you could judge this is maybe from an ethical point of view. And I would say you should judge it not from like, oh, from a romantic point of view, maybe you could judge it from a more ethical point of view and say like, okay, this tool, what does it do? And what is the function of this tool? Is this a tool we need? Is this a tool we should have? Is this a tool we should control? And so on and so forth. And I think this is where ethics and moral comes in. And, and maybe this is where we sort of like, we don't talk enough about this topic, even though there's a lot of debate on this topic, but it's sort of like, right? But most of the discussions are also not with the ones creating these tools and controlling them. So it's sort of like, hey guys over there, stop making this. And then there's like, I don't know, a thousand people over there making it. And they're like, okay, <laughs> yeah, great. 
we're not gonna stop. <laughs> it's sort of like saying stop making military, like uh, stop making uh, you know fighter jets. It's like this fighter jet business is not gonna stop because you're saying that. You can try to defund them and so on, but it's not like gonna stop. Just like AI is not. And of course now there's like this sort of internal struggles in these companies where people are like, hey, don't work with the military. And that that has actually reached some results, but to a limited extent, because you're just gonna find another company who starts to do exactly what they did before. There is enough people that does not concern themselves with ethics and morals in this way that will see an opportunity economically to do this. So I think that maybe the best way to approach this is not from like an art point of view and not from a romantic point of view. It's more from like an ethical point of view, if that makes sense. Like what impact does this have on the world? Is this the impact you want to have on the world? What do you align yourself with? That's maybe something that I, that I and uh, personally, I think it's kind of boring. And I've sort of stayed out of all AI discussions the last year because I think it's really boring. <laughs> and I think it's really, really boring. Both the sort of the pop spectacle of it, I think it's really boring. It reminds me a lot of things that I don't really find interesting. And the scientific aspect of it, yeah, like I say, I, I started to find the technology more and more boring because it comes down to what do you uh, find uh, valuable in life? And if you find it valuable to watch really high-end things on your TV, you might want to have even more advanced CG so it looks even realer, even more crisp right? But if that's not what you find interesting, then maybe you're not really up for that. And you don't really see the point in developing that. So I'm sort of in the second camp there, like I've became a person who doesn't really, I changed my values a lot. And therefore, I think this is not like I stopped. I'm more in this like, very strange time of making work that uses this these things but then at the same time sort of not seeing really the point in the same way I used to do so it's maybe more of a habit to make this work than it is like uh, something I'm very engaged with I had forgotten their existence 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 I've been making work I've been making new work and I don't know what I think about it because it's something that it's not like I'm against making something and it's not like I, uh, and I do enjoy it as a practice, you know, it's like, it's a, it's a nice activity, but it's the, is it something that, that gives me the most in life at the moment? Maybe it gave me a lot this time I work now because I rediscovered a lot of things and I listened to all my older stuff and I, realized I've been very sort of uh, 
bad at mediating what I do. And uh, yeah, maybe because it's been more of a discovery process than it's been like a, a mediating process, you know, so. But so what I've been doing, I've been working on a piece that was actually based on like this radio show I did for German radio uh, about, I mean, broadly speaking, the voice, but it involved all of this research from Japanese uh, scientists on the voice and also Finnish scientists. So it's like uh, I went to Japan and I went to Finland and I talked to them and recorded their opinions and, and then their devices and so on and so forth. And then I used software from that uh, realm to sort of process that again. And then that became a piece and then further processing and so on and so forth. And then that became a piece and it was played on like public radio in Germany. And then I've been sort of reinterpreting this again into more of a musical thing, which is kind of funny. And yeah, so it has like traces of that, but it's not that. And uh, yeah, so it's been a nice process. It's also just nice to make things that are like more. I personally like to make both. I like to make very sort of um, sound based work that are like less melodic and has less mel like less musical parts, if you can say that. Uh, if you make that distinction, I just think that, yeah, melodic is maybe the best way to put it. So it has less melodic parts, and then I like to make these more just listening pieces that are like sound-based, whatever form it takes. And it, it involves also a lot of sort of... Um, so I've been working on developing this uh, sort of random, almost random processing tool that just processes uh, anything I send to it and it just endlessly processes it through like all kinds of things like effects and so on and just chops it up and then like remakes it and then merges it together and then like adds uh, effects and so on and then it keeps doing that like endlessly until I stop it basically. So I normally just like feed it like maybe 100 sounds or something and then just let it run and it's more or less just random I mean I had some selection on what what the effects are like that it uses to process it but it even creates it even uses MIDI so it takes like a MIDI file and then it just like randomly tunes the synthesizer <laughs> like all the combinations possible on the synthesizer so in a digital synthesizer I don't know how many possible combinations there are like you know it's like say it has 200 knobs or something or 200 options and then it's 200 in 200 right so it can tune all of these and then it just outputs that and it just keeps doing that and and then it just strips away the ones that are like completely silent because most of them would be completely silent obviously so it sort of like explores the latent space of a synthesizer and then sometimes I use that and sometimes I don't. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so it's just a tool that I made for making sound and music.
for example, if I just have a synth, I'm making something more musical. I just have a synth and I feed it that, then I just get like lots of different varieties of that. And then I sometimes just bring them all into a software and then process it again there. Or sometimes it's just, for example, in this case, I took this whole piece from German radio and I just chopped it into like, I don't know, 100 pieces or 200 pieces or something, then processed them all manually and then merged them together and then processed them again and then merge and then process and then like, and then sort of it starts also to like put them after each other. So it makes like longer compositions out of it. And then like, I mean, most of it is like random, like sort of random processes. There's some like compositional elements that I designed in there. And then I take that again and then I sort of curate it. So I'm more of a curator than I'm like a creator of that sound. Instead of sitting like in a, with a, with a modeler synth or with a software and tweak it to one sound that you like, you're sort of like on a one linear path to somewhere. This is like creating like multiple paths. Maybe for this project, it was 2000 files or something that I listened to. And then I select what I like out of these 2000 files and I, I use them the way I want. And I do the same with images. So there's a part of this is the sound part and there's an image part also that is like a bot that constantly runs and, and like makes images. And then I feed it images. So it's like sort of like a feedback mode. It's like, you create work and then you feed it to this and then it creates versions and then you use those versions in your art again and then it just keeps going and going and going. So that's kind of like a a way of working that I enjoy because I don't really take much decisions. Like I've taken decisions, of course, when you design this, but then after that, it sort of creates so many strange things that I don't really, Yeah, there's a lot of aesthetic confrontation you have to do, which is kind of my favorite thing to do at the moment, to be confronted with my with what I create. So it's like, you design this, but you don't know the exact outcome. And why would you choose this outcome versus that outcome? This is sort of the constant question, right? Like, why would you choose um, it to look like this and not like that? But you can only imagine that when you have those two versions in front of you, before that, you couldn't really imagine them. And I've been really interested in, interested in the idea that almost all software and all music making has always been a process of, often at least, it, it's a process of not looking at a variety of opportunities or like a variety of options. It's about looking at one thing and creating this one linear path. So... For example, I did a project now where I generated 50,000 images and then I selected from that 200. So you can imagine the process of going through that and then selecting based on like, and it's a very confrontational process because you sort of like, why do I select this? Why do I select this? What do, why, why are you like this? Why, do, why are you like this, Lars? Why are you like, why do you want this? You know, so... I think that's a total different way of working than what I used to do, which was like more like an A to B kind of thing where you like open a software and work in it. And this is more like looking at all the options and then deciding. Of course, 
it's a design process beforehand where you sort of like limit the scope. But actually, I'm not limiting. I'm I'm trying to do almost everything I can in image processing, for example, and sound processing. I'm not trying to limit the process. But there's limits in software and what you can build. Like, you know, I don't have the capital to build something that would be completely. But I think there was a Russian scientist, I don't know which year, and I don't remember his name, but he wanted to make something that created all sounds possible. And this, I think, was a beautiful idea. And I think this was one of the inspirations to make this, which is definitely not all <laughs> possible. And it's not like really what I want, I think, because, but it's definitely like has, you could call it a lot of debris, a lot of beautiful debris in there. So I'm storing all the all the rejects too, you know, I'm not like, you know, I have hard drives of terabytes of images that are just laying there. And once in a while I go in there and I pick something. trying to create a forest, a forest kind of designed by me. And machine learning is more for me as I see it, um, a tool to sort of make logic out of things that we didn't necessarily before had the capacity to make logic out of or like to quantify. I'm not trying to quantify anything here, really. I'm trying to do the complete opposite. I'm trying to create more or less no meaning, like because to the extent of that amount of images, you don't really get much meaning after a while. Like, you know, try to sit and watch like 50,000 images in a day and you, you, like, you know, your mind starts to drift a bit, you know? And like, you know, try to get down to 200 images because you need to, because you can't deliver 50,000 images to someone and ask them to do it. You know, that's not really a task of quantifying. You know, I'm not interested in that. I think that is again relating to control and power in many ways. And I don't know, I'm not, that's not my, you know, I don't, that's exactly where you get into this idea of like, I mean, we, we've always been doing that. And if I wouldn't be doing any of this, like I say, I'm, 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 I would be fine. This is like a habit more than a, than a, than something I really like and extremely passionate. It's sort of running by itself, you know, at this point. And I designed it some years ago. It's not like, but once in a while, I guess I do some maintenance and I try to like upgrade it, but I'm also getting very sort of wary of, of this, of the sort of actuality of it. For example, I haven't built in much AI in it while I could do that, but it just takes a lot of resources and, it's just, um, yeah, but maybe I'll do it, you know, but it's not like it would anyways just be creating other aesthetics, right?
So you're just sort of like, I don't know, cycling through aesthetics. Yeah, I don't know. Like AI is also like maybe for artistic practice, it can be a way to uh, generate material in the same way that I generate now. And for in machine learning, for business use and so on, it's about quantifying and sort of making logic out of data on a larger scale than possible before. So, um, personally, I don't want to have so much organization, you know, like I'm not like putting it into a database or something and like organizing everything and being really like rigid about it. I think that's really boring. That's sort of what technology is built to do, right? I, I'm way more interested in just like opening this hard drive and like seeing what was there and be like, where, where did this come from? <laughs> so I don't really want this, but it's always this dilemma of like using technology that is built for that purpose to do that other thing that you like doing with it. So it's always sort of like this almost punk attitude, which I'm also not really a fan of because you're in, in the end, you're always embedded in that system that somebody developed. So I don't really believe in that either. So yeah, it's complicated. You understand how complicated this is because you're using something that is built on a binary code, right? Like you're using it that's built on something very binary. And you're trying to do something that looks to other people like it's an artistic gesture. And there's like, there is a dilemma there. Because when it gets down to the nitty gritty, you're doing binary things. Because that's the machine. That's how it interpretates it. So you can't be punk on top of that. It's just, it doesn't work. You're not punk. Like maybe if you pour water into it, it's punk. But like, you know, <laughs> it's just not punk. Like, and I think this sort of punkish attitude or like experimental attitude that is layered on top of this binary, it's something that I don't really uh, subscribe to. I once did a project like this though, where actually like I built a water system, the cooling system of the computer outside of the computer. So on the performance day, it was like the water system was in a buck, like in this like bucket on the ground. And like you would take the water, like it would be like the cooling elements would lay in this water. And when it would be cold enough, then the computer would run, right? So, but of course it was so much trouble with it because it didn't like had enough uh, pressure of the water onto the CPU. So it didn't like cool enough. So it was constant and it started to glitch and it was projecting this image of uh, a virtual image that was like a video of, of a virtual character of myself. So it was sort of like the machine was like projecting this, but then it was like alive because of this cooling of this water, right? And eventually I had to get someone from the audience to hold this tube up to give it enough water so the video wouldn't glitch. And this was real and I didn't per perceive, I didn't like uh, have any idea that this would happen. And it was sort of the purpose that it would be this like, it would just be at the edge of working and not working, like at this sort of equilibrium 
of like what a machine needs to operate. So you would just sort of like the temperature of the CPU is like the essence of if it can be there, if it can be projecting this video smoothly or not. And I had no idea that it would actually do that. So I was amazed by this because I was like, whoa, this is really funky. Like you can actually like, because computers are so intricate machines that hardly anyone sort of like deals with the machine in that way. Where, because of course they're really expensive. So like, I think this machine was like purposely built for this. So it was like, I don't know, I don't know, more than a thousand euros, I don't know. And then you, know, you wouldn't go and like try to do this to it because it can really ruin the CPU and everything because it's like, you're putting this like, I mean, it's special liquid, but it's like, um, you're putting and you, you're kind of like, you're not sure if it's gonna manage, you know? So uh, it was a really strange project, but I really enjoyed the setting up the scenario and seeing it unfold so chaotically. <laughs> then I felt like, wow, this is really good, but nobody's getting it. Like nobody in the audience here is really getting what's going on. And I'm just like really enjoying it because it's so strange. Because I had no idea that you would have VLC going like glitchy, you know, because it didn't get enough uh, liquid on the CPU. I didn't know. So that was beautiful. And luckily it didn't just crash, you know, but yeah. So again, I think that's maybe a bit more punk than uh, trying to like do what I normally do. I don't, but I don't even try to be punk. It was more like thinking like or revealing the processes of a computer, right? A modern day computer. It's easy to sort of reveal the processes of like older electronics, but it's harder to reveal the processes of like modern electronics because they're so complicated. So it's kind of like a process of revealing that. But yeah, it was, it was an experience. I only did that performance once <laughs> because first of all, people didn't get it. And second, like, you sort of need a narrative to make people understand it, right? So it doesn't really fare well. And also it's made me sweat like crazy. Cause I was like this, don't know what to do, you know? And also you have to carry around this machine. So, but uh, yeah.
And I don't think I did that like really consciously in the beginning, but of course you become very aware of it. And uh, but it's more like I was just interested in the sort of the edge between where things gives meaning to someone and where there's like no meaning and there's just like nothing. So, for example, with the music, it was more like what happens when all the songs, songs you don't know the name of. And if you call them things like like communicative names, then it's easy for people to remember. But this is, you can't remember. So it's like even I don't know at this point what song is what. So I have to always listen to it, which I think is a beautiful process. It's a poetic process and a very romantic process. So I guess that's like the romantic in me who likes this idea of this sort of chaotic playlist where you don't know any of the names you can't refer to it to others you only can like press play and be like do you know this song or you can be like that song was on that record the record had this strange name but it was given out by this label so the label becomes like your way of connecting it to other people and so on so it was like a process of sort of like while in art you have like untitled which i think was really sort of boring so i just created this own idea of this which is like untitled, the true untitled is things you don't remember. So that would just be the names of like nothing. So, and then of course it's embedded meaning in it. And some people know the meaning of some things and some people don't know the meaning of anything. And, and sometimes the meaning is really funny. And sometimes the meaning might have taken away the, like, I also really think that, that I like how things change meaning over time. So that you can build in these sort of like locks of opening meaning over time. Even though I do think that time itself just changes meaning like by itself and by it's like the whole world develops. But it's kind of nice when you like lock the meaning in and you can release it. So there's this like moments of release, like where I can say that that track, if you do this, it will give you the title of this track and then it will change your perception of that thing. So you kind of like building these time locks. And I think that's like, a, that's also very poetic. It's like a video game kind of thing, you know, where you like unlock something and then you realize, oh, that was why, or a film where you like watch it and then suddenly it like reveals the plot. It's very narrative-like in structure. So I'm fascinated by that. And yeah, so I built it for that purpose. And some things that might have really funny titles and some have like, you know, you can have titles that nobody would ever have on their songs because they have the, because they're locked. So they're only like, I know it and I carry around this and it's sort of a joy for me and maybe a few others and then might be a joy for everyone and might never be a joy for anyone. You know, it's like, that's sort of the joy of it, right? And also the projected thing that people project into it is funny. So it's like you create this sort of black box that people project into which I think is also funny.
this is something I didn't touch into, but it's a really interesting topic in terms of like machine time versus human time. And like the, the machine time is always sort of speeding up. And I think one of the main reasons why like we feel this way we feel in terms of like, one thing is of course capital is not distributed and wealth is not distributed, right? So therefore like we're not getting like enough to live for so we need to do x amount of extra things to make it run right that's one side another side is machine time because you see it in other industries too it's like machine time is sort of like time that is parallel to human time like and it's slowly speeding up all the time so like and then eventually it will phase out the human in different parts so it's like you see in certain f fabrication and optimization at some point they just cut out the human part because it's not it, it's not efficient it doesn't it has less errors and so on but it's basically machine time just cutting out the human and this i feel is pressuring all of us at all times in all areas and it's like and you can feel it in everything and especially i think like artists and, and they don't feel it more they feel exactly the same way, but they're, they're less aware of it. They're less aware of the f how fast it is to do things nowadays versus how it was. They're less aware of it because they're not in part of like manufacturing or any of these sort of processes. So they don't, they never get uh, taken out of the process. It's like you never need one less artist. It's just that they are just always sort of pressured and squeezed. And this, I think, is something that I never actually seen anyone writing anything substantial on. Like the fact that art, there is one guy who wrote some of it, but it's like everyone can now make merchandise in a matter of five minutes. I could create a shirt here, I could make it, I can have it manufactured. Like all the people in that process, a lot of them are already gone from that process, right? And I can just do this duel and then it's a shirt and you can buy it and then it gets shipped. And this is all faster, but it's also faster the fact that I can make it. So even more people can make it and it has sped up all of these things that like, for example, creating music, everyone can now access music way easier and create sort of like the basis of a song. But it also actually slowly just phases us out of it. And this is the pressure you feel as an artist. That's why you won't take a train, you will take a plane because you don't have the time for trains. Because you have to make X amount of posts on social media. You have to do X amount of things to keep yourself alive. This is really, really tricky because it's these tools that are getting automized. It's, these, it's the processes that are getting automized to that extent. That, and it's also tricky because it's actually, you could argue more people have access. But when access is so available, which is in a way a great thing because everyone can sort of, or more people can access, but then time is becoming scarcer, right? So it's about maximizing time so you can have time for access, right? But then, with people, so time becomes the privilege. Like, oh, I have the time to take the train. I have the time to not take the plane and be like environmental friendly. Uh, 
and the hack there needs to be a hack there to have time to take the train but not having to post like 30 on 30 different platforms while you take the train you know there has to be a hack and this hack is something that I think more people should think about how to hack that because that's the hack how to hack the what is needed for you to be in the marketplace because now the requirements are so insane that it, it also lowers uh, the time you have on on the material you produce on everything you make it lowers the time and you see it it's like from every artist I've met, it's the same struggle. And it's a really sad struggle too, because it's like everyone needs to keep up with this and everyone is sort of pushing each other to, to do it, while nobody actually wants to do it in that pace. Be present, right? That's just that's my answer. <laughs> just like, you know, I say that I'm now seventy percent Buddhist, uh, and the thirty percent. So I spent the last years reading a lot about Buddhism, and I'm still just seventy percent. I don't go and practice it with others. I don't really have the joy of that. Um, for many, many reasons we don't have to get into, but um, I think most of my work has always been about sort of like, first of all, it's just my brain, it's my way of dealing with the world. And then it's sort of mediating that and trying to say, I don't, it's not like a clear political decision, but it's definitely saying something in the direction of trying to, present somewhat the way we we deal with material and the way we deal with news the way we deal with content the, our expectations of things and so on it's a lot about expectations I think. so when your focus becomes about being more present I, I guess that's when um, things like certain things doesn't give as much meaning anymore in the same way it used to do and then you to maybe change your, your direction so 70 percent you know not more not less it's sort of a joke but it's uh, it's true i mean you know if anyone wants to talk to me about this topic they can they can reach out i don't know if it's like a Bud buddhist podcast i'm on now <laughs> but it definitely has informed my practice over years but it's now way more present than ever and um, it definitely informs my new work and I can uh, but it also makes me less interested in art not that art isn't an amazing thing because I think it is I think it's like great to see art and people's artworks but um, 
from like a make like to be a live living of it requires a certain way of being that does not correspond too much with being a 70% Buddhist so uh, yeah you, you sort of like realize there's a contradiction there and that you will uh, you will always sort of be placed in uh, because you can't play into the same things if you want to be a bit uh, like if you want to follow that 70% so you you can't uh, yeah and that has to do with for example mediation and sort of right right living as you would refer to in Buddhism like that you yeah it there's a lot of things you start to do differently and it doesn't really work in that way with with art if you want to make a career out of it So lately I've been since I run this newsletter and so on and became more uh, interested in how you can lower your impact while being a practicing artist to some extent you know maybe I'm 30% practicing artist <laughs> so so um I'm I've been working on this project it was meant to uh, air on or be presented on sound in Krakow, but it didn't happen. I got sick, so uh, it uses AI as a component in it, and it's a way. There are several ways to go about. It. Like first of all, I try to cut down on my uh, uh, flying, so. From a personal point of view, I was like, hey, it doesn't make sense for me to fly around the world to play for I don't know how many people. It doesn't make sense. This is purely personal. I'm not trying to judge people doing so. Um, so I decided I wanted to make a way where you could tour without me. Lower my impact, but still sort of carrying something. So I try to think like, okay, what could it be like? Moving me physically is quite of a, you know, it has a, it has a quite a high carbon footprint. In the taxi, in the flight, in the food, everything I need to consume. And if you calculate it, you would figure out that, for example, having a software that would like represent everything about me, if that's possible. I don't think it is, but, you know, it would probably have a way lower footprint. It didn't even need to be, like, of course, you have to calculate the machine it was made on and so on and so forth, but it would still have quite a low footprint compared to me touring this piece for I don't know how many places. So I designed this. It was built on this uh, performance I talked about. So it's a virtual character of me. And is trying to compose electroacoustic music in virtual space. <laughs> so, because I always thought that would be funny, 
that you can kind of create compositions in virtual space. Um, and the AI is basically controlling me. So I am learning how to run as a virtual character. And while I'm on the mission on learning how to run, which takes, in AI terms, it takes maybe 200,000, 300,000, 400,000 cycles of training. So you train this AI on optimizing how to run. And that character is me, so I'm like learning how to run in virtual space. And while I'm learning how to run, I'm also composing music. And that is kind of the essence of the software. Then of course it has multiple other scenarios where it uses AI to compose. And there's different scenes and it, it also sort of reflects or uses uh, 3D scans of nature in there. So it's like I've been out in the woods kind of like neatly scanning it. And then it represents that, and in those scenes there will also be electroacoustic composition being happening. I don't know if you can call it electroacoustic when it's virtual, but that's another. <laughs> <laughs> but of course, like, you know, we haven't gone that far yet in that realm, so... And I don't know, you know, it's... I always say to myself, like, what are you trying to achieve with this? seems uh, like you're trying to make a pun that is not worth making and uh, it seems like you're sort of this like child who will always just say no for the sake of it you know so I reasoned it in this way that if I create a world that is the world I would want to create in that virtual world and it will tour as a small piece of software and you could you could open the software and every time it opens it will perform another piece of music then I have succeeded then it's just up to people to book it like they would book me and then I have lowered my impact but still I'm an active and performing artist and that I think is kind of beautiful it's not like these other virtual characters you see which has like fandom and like they have all these sort of they play into, they mirror this pop star kind of thing. It's not my goal. My goal is just to create this weird piece of software that sort of makes people reflect actually more about nature than anything. So this is a more of a political piece than it is an electroacoustic piece or a virtual acoustic piece. I think it's also just a nice pun, you know? It's like a pun in my own life. It's a pun on like, it's this sort of like my kid could paint it kind of pun, you know? It's like, oh, I'm, there's this virtual character of me just fooling around, which is how I always saw my practice largely also. So it's sort of doing that. So it's not like a, it's not a pun on other artists, it's just a pun on myself because it is myself in virtual space, just trying to learn how to run walk and then while I'm stumbling around in that world it sort of creates and call it whatever you want I think it's a it's a novelty concept <laughs> it's not 
there's not many softwares like this. Yeah, I don't think anyone will think this is realistic. I mean, my character was actually made pretty realistic. But not when it moves like this, and definitely not when it's in those worlds. There's nothing that resembles reality. And I don't really want that either. I think it's way more fun that it's like a complete other world where nothing operates like in the... I mean, there is actually gravity in things. So there is like a simulation of that. And there's some simulation of like reverb and space for the sound. So like you will have 3D space in the sound and stuff. It's all simulated, so it's not really realistic. It's not like physical modeling or anything, but it's like, um, because that's too intensive. So it's like a more simple version of all of these things, which I think is also kind of cute. So it's very flat. It's just mm, simulates 3D space, right? And I think it's all, all of this is kind of funny because it's a flat file. It's just, uh, you know, numbers. And it's, yeah, I think that's kind of funny that you're just compressed into this thing. So I enjoyed this, this part of it more than I'm trying to create some sort of illusion. I think illusions are really boring. And I think AI is boring when it tries to be that. For me, personally, I can understand how other people really like this like uncanny valley. But, uh, yeah, I think AI is more fun when it's very chaotic and it's not like trying to achieve something that we, I don't need anything from it. So why would I then try to achieve that? But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's been a long process. So both to arrive at this idea and to start to create it. So I'm not sure if what will happen with it like i said i'm in a changing moment in life so i'm not sure i'll be as passionate about it after it's finished and like sort of like our first version is there i have to sort of like negotiate with myself it's, if, it, if it can work but it definitely feels lighter than me being on an airplane and being in hotel rooms like it's lighter and you can just send the file and I wish that people would see it in that way and not be so obsessed with flesh if people would be less obsessed with flesh because obsession with flesh is in a way obsession with perfection also um, in terms of AI for example like we want to create this illusion of us and create this illusion of things which is actually an obsession with flesh it's an obsession with us and yeah I don't if people could be less interested in like having people there so not in the sense of like I think there's this idea of that you know, if you ever, when we used to have letters, right? You could still feel the meaning of a person. You can be as present. That person could be as present, right? Two simple, small gestures. It seems like we just increased what's needed for this to happen. So we like, we, 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 we try to constantly not fill, fill in less and less space 
of the sort of Latin space around a person, right? So you're sort of saying like, the letter was like enough for people to, to, to give emotions, right? To have emotions about that person, right? But then we just expanded to like video images and we just keep expanding. And this doesn't make any sense from like the 70% in me. It doesn't make any sense that we just keep expanding because we're not seeming to like be satisfied. So like when there will be a virtual character of me dancing around your couch or something, then you'll be like, oh, that's amazing. But I wish you could be like a bit more realistic or something. You wouldn't be like, wow, wow. Like you wouldn't, you would just accept this as the norm. And this sort of constant pushing of this, I think, is like greediness. It's basically being greedy. And I don't think that that's a healthy m mindset in general, because it's, at least not for me. I mean, people can do what they want. I think for me personally, I've had this mindset and it didn't make me happy. And now, so back to the software, because this relates to a software, right? A software is a tiny file of, of like zero and ones, right? And I mean, tiny in, in the scope of things, right? So if you take a software like that, it could be considered like a beautiful letter written, maybe many, many pages, right? Why is that not a sufficient, you know? Why is that? Why do I need to be there in person to present this thing? Or why do I need to do a concert next to it so that people get some flesh? You know, like, why do you need all these things? This I don't get. Because it's this constant moving of this. We don't want to like imagine. We don't want to, we want to fill in, you know, as much as we can. And this I think is a curse. It's a curse. No, I'm joking. But it's, it's definitely something that we should be maybe more, or I should be very aware of. I don't want to speak about we, I just want to say I want to be aware of it. And I try to be as aware I can of it. So I think that the software is enough it's all there just like if i would just write something on your in your notebook it would be all there it's not like you need anything more But you know, in a marketplace, if you, if I would say to you, you know, you book me and it's gonna cost you like, I don't know how many euros, right? And then I just say, you know what? Like, I'm not gonna come, I'm not gonna perform and I'm just gonna send you this email and you just read this out loud. People would be very disappointed both for what they paid for because they expected more and they would also be disappointed that that email is not sufficient it doesn't carry enough. And this is the curse. Like you, I mean, curse is the wrong word. Like this is sort of where we've reached. This is where we're at. We're expecting something. And expectations are very dangerous. Yeah, they lead to this kind of marketplaces, which 
const which is uh, yeah i would say they're damaging for planet earth basically and we should be aware of that and uh, uh luckily this podcast can just travel like a little file and that i enjoy but so what i've tried to do recently since i'm traveling and stuff i try to just do as much as i can in where i am and then try to cover as much as i can and then also travel locally from there and then cover but it's of course it's a dilemma so i'll probably move into something way more local which i'm in the process of doing hence the mushrooms so yeah but we'll see i can't like talk too much about that because i don't know if that's going to be reality but i'm working on trying to localize my practice a lot more so i won't have this impact and then i can ship the software if you want it and if you don't want it if it's not spectacular enough for you and if it doesn't have enough flesh in it then yeah then you don't have it advocating for that people should just sit in their own little worlds and communicate over the internet even though that's very joyful sometimes and uh, you can gather a lot of knowledge and experience and uh, yeah friendship even through that and uh, virtual friendships are very real but I'm advocating for presence, and in presence it also requires bodies, and it requires flesh. So I'm not, I, I mean, I am flesh, I will be located somewhere. I just maybe want to be more present where I'm located. And if that means I'm traveling somewhere, fine. But maybe I should consider the way I travel. Maybe I should consider the way I impact the world. In Maybe I consider the process of it and the materials and all of these things that has to do with this. And of course, you will never reach some sort of picture-perfect world. This is not what I'm arguing for either. I'm just arguing for awareness of it and awareness of the processes that happens. And we should lower our impact. We shouldn't lower it just because of climate change. We should actually always have lowered our impact. This is like, and now the 70% of me is speaking, it's we should lower our impact so that we can take care of our surroundings in a better way. This this doesn't purely respond to like transport or food. It responds to all matters in this world. Absolutely all matters. And to be that, you have to be aware, you have to be present, and you have to be... Uh, have gratitude and also show appreciation for your environment. And uh, environment means bodies, it means people, it means environment in general. Everything that exists that is living and what we maybe don't know is living yet. <laughs> so it means all, everything. And this is, 
that's why I'm not advocating for like not bodies and I'm, I'm against anything. I'm just cyber. No, definitely not. I'm just arguing for presence where you are. I think in general, as an artist myself and as other artists, often you tend to value the impact towards an audience or the impact of your statement or the impact of your work or your impact of something more than the impact of your processes. And this is a dilemma and a risk because the impact of your processes might have various tentacles that reaches everywhere in the world in various ways. And you're disregarding most of that often for your own benefit. And that is something that we should be more aware of, or I should be more aware of it. You guys do what you want. That's wrong. <laughs> I'm not a preacher. Um, so if you become more aware of it, you will probably change the way you make art and also what your subject matters are. Like you would just change. Like you would just like, regardless, because you, you can't keep going in this way. And that relates to the objects you produce. It relates to the way you relate to almost everything around you. It's just like, you'd be like, oh, I want to sculpt this or I want to build this installation out of this material or I want to melt some plastic or something. And you think like, why? In art is often seen as like, you need to have the uh, object to reflect on it. As what I mean by that is that you need to present the idea that you want people to reflect on as like, if I would want to make a statement or I would want people to reflect over how much we consume today or something, or like how life is so busy or what role or a political role or anything beforehand, I would often present like things in relation to that. So you have objects or something representing this. But do you really need those objects to represent that? This is what I'm questioning because there's a lot and lots of material involved in that process that just actually outside of your artistic practice, outside of your statement, outside of what you believe in, it has a material impact on this world also. I find Goodipal's works really interesting and I agree with a lot of what he said about this topic of, of climate change and the way he reflected on it and what he's done. But of course, like, you could also say, how many times do you need to be told? <laughs> because it's not like there is not enough information out there. It's not that there exists enough warnings or anything or like that we shouldn't have done this. I don't know hundred years ago. I mean, not like we shouldn't have minimized our impact from day one. This is not even about climate change. This is about something bigger. And this is about impact on your surroundings. And I want to say that that's what it's about because it makes it way more clear. 
and nobody's perfect and I didn't live a perfect life. And so this recent discovery has made me take a lot of different changes in life. And and, and I'm very happy that I discovered that this and uh, everyone is allowed to change. And that's the great part. And we can change all life through. And uh, I think that the important part is that if you think of... uh, There is a negotiation between action, between material and between uh, like impact, right? And impact, I don't mean impact on environment, I mean impact on other individuals and their ideas, right? but for example, I find it way more efficient to do action that actually benefits the earth rather than um, action that doesn't benefit the earth, but then tells people that it, sh- that it should not. You know, th- these are two different actions and they're both actions and they're both and one is actually benefiting and one is the other one is like showing how bad things can be and then trying to tell people not to do it which is uh, yeah so i think you can you can say that some things are more efficient uh but it requires a general change of uh perception from people and um yeah maybe it won't come maybe it will come i feel it's somewhat here but mainly in 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 a, in a facade way more than in in actual change Of course, I don't think we're ever going to live in a world where everything is local, especially not in the north, because you would just eat potatoes, Uh, (laughs) which is great. But like, you know, so I do think we just have to find better ways of of transportation and better ways of we should aim for self-sufficiency as much as we can. Right. And uh, I'm, I'm going full in now. This year is my goal is to continue this practice and um, localizing and maybe shipping some software. So if you want to fund my self-sufficiency, you can, <laughs> you can, you can have, you can book this uh, software and uh, it might contain some tips and tricks of how to be self-sufficient. But um, I think that there's um if you want to be in the marketplace of music and if you want to be in the marketplace of contemporary art and so on, um, I'm not sure if uh, these things goes hand in hand with being self-sufficient and very locally focused. Um, book more local acts, you know, like uh, see what your surroundings has to offer, you know, instead of uh, this there is a great thing about exchange you know i'm not gonna play down any of these things i'm just saying that we should try to find ways to do it more um, sustainable 
and and try to live more sustainable whatever that requires um the argument against sustainability is often like yeah but modern life is so complex that you cannot like manage but it's not about fully 100 percent per picture perfect manage this it's about being aware and like minimizing it's not no i'm not perfect like there's lots of things i do that are not like sustainable and but i'm striving towards a more sustainable life and i think we should all do that and uh that should also incorporate art and music uh even how hippie that sounds like to you right now it might uh you know you know i'm a hippie now so not like my mother and father they were actually never hippie but like you know not like that generation that turned into google and turned into these things I think we have to redefine the ideas of what a hippie is. And I think that's an interesting discussion. And I think we should redefine many of these things so we can be comfortable with them. And we should be comfortable with being uh, embracing all these things that are positive uh, and embracing uh, a sustainable life. I consider science a highly creative practice because it's about discovering, it's about invention, it's about many things that you also do in art. So I don't think the difference is that great, um, but it depends what kind of scientist you are as a person. I did a project with some Finnish scientists and it was quite a joyful process actually. and. It was a process where they both, where I think we both sort of benefited from that. But they were highly creative people, and I think you have to be in a creative mindset to uh, be capable of connecting to an artist in this way that it benefits your science. So, from my discovery, um, where we created these, um, the history of the vocal tract and the history of and 3D scans of that, but also modeling like future vocal tracts that are not even existing based on like certain things like what we will eat and how we will develop as humans and so on. That's like a quite creative thing to do. And they enjoy that very much and also inform their practice in many ways. And also it can give them an insight into what they're doing from a different angle. So I'd, I would say that there's quite a good connection between this when it works. In science, like everything else, you need uh, there's a certain com commercialization, and that that can often lead to the need of efficiency and the need of results, and that can often be a process where there's not much where creativity kind of goes and dies, right? So um, maybe you have to be creative to optimize the way that you get funding, but you're not necessarily optimizing the way or like being creative in the way of like figuring out new ways of doing something like most a lot of scientific discoveries are creative like have been creative processes it's just the way how you what you call creative and i would expand what 
creativity is quite far. So for me, it doesn't really work in this way of separation that like artists are creative and like, other people are not. Like it's not the way I think. So. Yeah, I think art and science has a lot in common. There's maybe an ideological difference sometimes, and um, that really depends on the project. Uh, in this case, they were their goal was to develop uh, machine surgery for cancer patients to recreate the vocal tract. Right. And in that process, they create these models. They created this um, way of uh, simulating a vocal tract, so that you could do a machinic surgery to recreate it, so people could get their voice back after uh, surgery. So, uh, but in that process, they also sort of modeled, as detailed as they could, they modeled the uh, vocal tract. Um, and also created these 3D uh, prints of it so that and, and, and measured sound through it. And so, for example, one model they built was his old uh, whiskey uh, box <laughs> that was fitted with these microphones and measuring instruments to... Uh, and it looked like it came out of some, like, hobbyists um, place, but it was like a beautiful, beautiful little sculpture right there with this 3D printed vocal tract on top, and then this um, whiskey uh, whiskey box with with these uh, measuring things in it, and uh, and the the guy who built it, he was also uh, building uh, old uh, amplifiers, so he was a very good builder. So it looks very good too. And this is clearly a creative process. I mean, to say that this is not creative and the way it looks, the aesthetics and everything and the choices, that's a creative process. 